Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where we take a film studies sort of eye towards films that don't belong in a film studies course, although this particular film could be found in a film studies course. Well, we are in February, so we're doing anti-trash once again in honor of award season. But anti-trash with a spin, we're going to do kind of a, a love month anti-trash, so romance anti-trash. Play it once, Sam. For all time's sake. I don't know what you mean, Miss Elsa. Play it, Sam. Play as time goes by. I'll have what she's having. Love means never having to say you're sorry. I wish I knew how to quit Why don't you? Why don't you just let me be, huh? I have a love in my life. It makes me stronger than anything you can imagine. I would say that's that mattress, man. Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. <laughs> talking about that we're very very excited to hear the story uh about how you know one man discovers that his daughter has been kidnapped and then he works his way across europe uh destroying everyone in his path i thought it was about one young man whose aunt and uncle are uh, murdered by intergalactic fascists i thought it was about one young woman singing about how tomorrow tomorrow there's going to be a better day you know, I you know all those things could be right, but before we get into what actually is accurate of Woody Allen's Annie Hall, we need to introduce the disembodied voices. To my left, sir, if you would. My name is Dalton Stewart, and I have forgotten my mantra. That's you know, it's a problem to be having. Across the table, if you would, ma'am. My name is Alexander Bohannon, and love is essential, especially if it's neurotic. My name is Dustin Sells, and I almost didn't make the podcast today because my raccoon had hepatitis. But I'm very <laughs> glad to be here. I want to point out that the uh, person who speaks my line in the film is Jeff Goldblum. It, it, it is Jeff Goldblum. Listeners might remember long ago, I can't remember, was it Shane or Caleb? Somebody asked us what film features cameos from a young Goldblum and a young Christopher Walken, and it is Annie Hall. Mm-hmm. Also, Shelley Duvall. That's right. Callbacks. So, so believe it or not, this this show, this movie has come up on the show before. It has indeed, and we're going to be talking about it, but we need to warn you, dear listener, this is not a review show. It's an analysis show, and that requires of us to do spoilerific spoilerages, but we try to hold a moratorium on that for just a few moments. We give a quick synopsis, we do our quick thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews, and then we move right into the spoiler territory. So you've now been warned, dear listener, at that point, if you have not seen any Hall and are worried about being spoiled in its secrets when finally Woody Allen brings the body of Diane Keaton 
Keaton back down from the mountain after slaying all his foes. Um, you know, we're going to avoid that. I, for some Woo! reason, I was thinking Ten Commandments, but I don't know if that's exactly good. I'm just here. making an action movie version of okay. Woody Allen because it amuses me because he does not belong there. Is it this, is that, does that happen in Conan? I, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> But anyway, uh, we begin first with that uh, synopsis from The Voice, the cinema, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Who is here in his uh, role as producer just this evening, but always with us as the voice of the cinema. Correct. If you would, sir. Neurotic New York comedian, Alvy Singer, falls in love with the ditzy Annie Hall. Is that literally it? <laughs> that's not what, I'm pretty sure that's, that's not actually what happens in this movie. <laughs> that's that preacher man. What did he say? What did he say? Shut up. Shut up. Shut Shut up. <laughs> That's so good. Oh, thank <laughs> you, See our Punch Drunk Lep episode for um, um, understanding the references, if for some reason that made no sense to you whatsoever. It almost listener. didn't make sense to me, and I was there, so. It's really not what happens in this movie. I just want to point that out. Yeah, well, I mean, that does happen. Are we going to get back into our meta critique of the um, synopses of these films? I think that's what's <laughs> happening. Yeah. I think we're that guy in line at the movie theater in Annie Hall right now. Yeah, you know, and, and I'm telling you what, um, you don't know Marshall McLuhan because I know Marshall McLuhan. I have him right here. And then, that's really, God, that's a great <laughs> pretty bit. Pretty brilliant. That's a great bit. All right, well, let's do our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. Let's know what we all think about this film. Miss Alexandra Bohannon, what say you? I like it, and... I like it because it's a Woody Allen movie, and I like Woody Allen movies. And I think that's kind of kind of the thing. If you like Woody Allen movies, this is considered to be probably his movie. Like the one that, oh, have you seen a Woody Allen movie? Yes, what have you seen? It's Annie Hall, maybe Manhattan. The most Woody of the Woody Allen movies. Exactly, the I've, Woodiest, if you will. I've seen it written that Annie Hall is everyone's favorite Woody Allen movie, and that's not correct for me, but we'll get to that later. Right, and I actually I hadn't seen this one before, despite liking him a lot, and I feel like it does everything that he that I expect a movie that I know is directed by him to do. And and I like it and I enjoy it and it's and it's fun and it provides kind of that um, that sadness and poignancy that kind of weaves through it and I enjoyed myself and I I know that from your various facial expressions and as well as your letterbox review that you did not enjoy this movie <laughs> too much. That that might be putting it strong. Are, are you pitching to me? Should I go ahead and start? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I gave it. I give it 850 um, self-indulgent plays out of 984. Maybe I'm being too generous. 1,563. <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny. Well done. Well done. Well, Mr. Donald Stewart, go ahead. Let us know what you think. I, I think the problem is it's not that I dislike Woody Allen movies. I think I don't like Woody Allen. That's I think, fair enough. I think that's what it comes down to is I, I think he's a fucking asshole. Um, well, he kind of is. To to put it in no uncertain terms, G Dalton, tell us how you really feel. Um, I will. Thank you for asking. <laughs> he just rubs me the wrong way. And in most films, uh, you know, people say, "Oh, I can't stand The Godfather too because everyone's an asshole." Uh, and that's like, I like it as a film, but I have a hard, I can't connect to anyone in it because everyone's awful. And I don't have that with gangster movies because they're gangsters. But in a, in a romantic film or a film that's about a relationship, I guess, because it's not quite a romantic film. Uh, yeah. I should have some some tie to 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 the protagonist, and I don't. 
I have a tie to Annie Hall because she's really likable and she's interesting and she's uh, carrying the insufferable yoke uh, that is this douchebag that she's dating. Um, but I don't like Alvy. Uh, and I, we had this happen when we watched Manhattan. Was Woody Allen's character rubs me the wrong way, and that's what I'm I'm starting to realize is it's a pattern. I like Woody Allen movies, just the ones that he's not in. I love Matchpoint. I think Matchpoint's one of his most underrated things that he's ever done. I think it's great. I like Midnight in Paris a lot. Guess what? He's not in either of those movies. And I think right. when he got too old to be in his movies, that's when his movies got good. And I know that's not a popular opinion, but that's the way I feel about it because he really rubs me the wrong way. I'm trying to remember his role in Scoop, which is a that's more a recent movie. Mo- Woody Allen movie that <sighs> Arthur has informed us from his place in the producer's box that it, he, <laughs> it is a he's a harbinger in purgatory. And I really can't remember the premise, but I didn't find I him. It's not a good movie. Well, that might be the the crux there. But, you know, and it's it's a very funny movie. I do want to say that. Um, you know, Dustin mentioned the meta moment in line to the theater. Uh, there's the moment where Annie and his friend Max, who calls Alvy Max, was kind of a that, I don't That was strange. They mm-hmm. keep calling each other Max. I don't. But they go visit his childhood memories. That was really funny. There's all these really great meta moments. Um, it really is a deconstruction of romance that we get later on with other films, and I'll talk about that in Elster instead. Um, but, you know, we see the relationship ending. We see it in progress. We see it beginning. Um, so we kind of get a, a, a moratorium on the relationship as it's happening, which I think is really interesting. And, and it's a very well-made film. I think it's hilarious. I think it has a lot of interesting things to say about relationships. I just don't like Woody Allen. Um, and I've I've seen the the buildings that were – the buildings that are the films that were built on the foundation of Annie Hall. And I think they're a lot better. Um Alex uh, alluded to my letterbox review, which said, I, I think I'd have liked it more if I'd seen it if I'd seen it in 1977. Okay, now that makes a lot more sen- sense, because I was just thinking, oh, well, he, he didn't like their, the way they, they dressed and their, their clothes. No, I loved it. <laughs> no, oh, God, Diane Keaton's wardrobe in this film is immaculate. It apparently oh, established Lord. kind of like a style revolution at the oh, time. Yeah, I that, love that, it. That, that necktie and vest, it's, you it's, know, it's, it's, it's awesome. It's it's great. My listeners are dressed like Annie Hall. I think it's a great look. Like, everybody should dress like that. I'm going to dress like that from now on. I'm kidding. Um, He's already dressed like that right now. That's true. Uh, my point is, there are a lot of things I like about this movie. I think Woody Allen just irritates the shit out of me, and I have a really hard time getting past that. Um as well as I've seen all the films that have cribbed Annie Hall and expanded upon what it does. Uh, and I think it does some of the things that Hall does a little bit better. And that's what I had to say about that. I would give it, oh, eight years of psychoanalysis out of a possible 15. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalsford. I liked it quite a bit more, I think. And because I can recognize a thing for its time, even though I've seen the thing after its time. Like mm-hmm. Woody Allen, I, I just see as sort of this neurotic character caricature of New York, New York Jewishness. And how is that any less anti-Semitic than uh, the Hebrew hammer? Yeah! Well, because I, I don't know, because there is a sort of lived-inness. It's mm-hmm. not so much playing up to the stereotypes as much as I kind of believe Woody Allen 
is a lot of those things. Mm-hmm. He's only exaggerating them mm-hmm. rather than reaching for them, trying okay. to create them. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it seems yeah. to me to be slightly a different animal. See episode like nine, uh, where Dustin was not happy with the the uh, Jewish stereotypes on play in the film The Hebrew Hammer. I hated that movie. Well, I think we all did. Um, I think it's brilliantly written. I think it's brilliantly directed. I would say both of those things. You yes. know, I think uh, I think the way it's modernist and the way it draws attention to its own device that it is a film when Woody Allen speaks to the calendar the, the, excuse me when Woody Allen speaks to the camera and those sort of moments I think there is some 90s level wise. there's some 90s level fourth wall breaking happening yeah. in 1977 and I, I was really blown away by that and that to me I mean really really elevates the film I'm at, assuming you'd seen it before I have not actually really this okay. is the first view I've seen okay because so, I, I knew it was a first for me and I knew it was a first for Alex and I assumed it was a first for you no, is a first for me so I'm going to give it four and a half girls in a fedora out of a possible five alright well there you go alright well there you go dear listener you know our biases now let's go ahead and do what we're here to do which is to bring some analysis Mr. Dalton Stewart I know you have brought in some analysis alongside you what uh, analysis do you bring well I, I happen to read something uh, that I, I found interesting just you know doing a little bit of research about the film itself the production of the film the critical uh, reception of the film uh, and there were a couple of uh, sociologists who were doing some film writing that talked about how this film really does a lot to play with um, or I guess plays the wrong word but to actually hold up some gender stereotypes you know um, Alvy wants to have sex a lot and Annie really is would rather have sex less um, some stuff like that and I started thinking about you know women in film and specifically women in in romantic films and I obviously found my way thinking about manic pixie dream girls which uh, Scott Rubin who actually I believe that's the, the author's name who used to write for the AV club now writes for the dissolve actually recently uh, wrote a piece for Vulture, I think it was. Uh, no, I'm sorry, it was Salon, where he, he basically said, I, I really wish I had not coined the phrase uh, Manic Pixie I did Girl. see that piece, yeah. Have you seen that piece? Brilliant, it's, it's, yeah. a, it's really well written. I'm sorry, that's Nathan Rabin who uh, coined the term Manic Pixie Dream Girl. He was talking about the uh, Kirsten Dunst film Elizabethtown from 2007, which was directed by Cameron Crowe. Um, but, but he recently, a year or two ago, wrote an article saying, I really wish I had not done this. Um, because it's be, it's very redact, reductive, um, and, and it's misused, and it has become as pervasive as the trope that I named. And I think he makes a good point uh, because Annie Hall is singled out as as one of the as a manic pixie dream girl frequently, and she is not. I want to make that very clear: she is not what a manic pixie dream girl is, and what it is not are key. What it is is a character that serves to do nothing but to get our main character out of a rut. I think really the most clear example there is is Natalie Portman in Garden State. I, I think that's a really big one. Yeah. Uh, and, and it has been said that it is a inherently sexist term. I'm going to disagree with that. I think the trope is inherently sexist. I think the term is, you know, um, you know putting a name to God, as it were. Um, putting putting a name to that intangible, finding a way to to codify something that that we see a lot in film, and I think for that it's very valuable because it is important to have a shorthand when you're trying to to describe the 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 kind of ephemeral, the you know the things that we all know exist but have a very difficult time articulating. Um, so what the manic picture dream girl does is point out very problematic depictions of women, uh, women uh, characters that are one-dimensional, that are stock characters in a lot of ways. But just because a woman, I'm sorry, I said a woman, what, a female character plays a ukulele or rides a vest, but that doesn't inherently make her a Manic Pixie Dream Girl character. What makes her an Im- 
I'm just going to do the acronym and uh, realize that that was too hard. Manic Pixie Dream Girl. What makes her that is that she has no internal life. She does not serve anything but to get our character out of rut. And Annie Hall does not do that. She's not here for Alvy's benefit. And I got to give credit where credit is due to to uh, Woody Allen. She is there as a character. She grows. She has her own life. She leaves Alvy. She finds her own bliss. She finds Alvy insufferable as I do uh, and gets the hell out of there. And it's not about him. Alvy's pretty much in the same spot we find him when we start the film. He does not have any character growth because of her. He doesn't get out of a rut because of her. They have a relationship together. If anything, he gets her out of a rut. Um, and I think that's really interesting because Annie Hall is often cited as one of like the early Manic Pixie Dream Girls along with uh, Audrey Hepburn and Breakfast at Tis- Tiffany's and Catherine Hepburn uh, in Bringing Up Baby. Um, I-, I can't speak to those films, but I can't speak to Annie Hall. And that's not accurate, and I think that's a real problem because I think what Nathan Rabin has, has said is accurate is that this word is just getting thrown all around a lot because it's a buzzword. It's, it's a word that people say, this makes me sound smart, so I'm going to say it. And it doesn't make you sound smart. It makes you sound reductive. Think about the film you've watched. Think about the criteria here. And we're going to talk more about this later um, and elsewhere instead. But I, I just think it's really important to point out that Annie Hall is good in that it does present a fully fleshed out, a fully formed, a fully interesting female character who does not just serve to um, let our sad sack protagonist out of his shell and help him get out of a rut in his life. She's there to be her own person and to have her own relationships and to have her own life and to present a fully formed and fully realized idea of a person um, who, who is, you know, this, this very real character, this very lived-in, as Dustin said, as very lived-in character who – you know, at the end of the film says, I'm sorry, Alvy, you know, like, I, I'm not going to be with you. I, I've got better things going on. I appreciate, you know, the experience we had together, but I'm moving on. Um, so that's what I would say uh, about Annie Hall and, you know, the larger conversation about women and romantic and romantic comedies uh, as well. Well, nicely said, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I have a couple things that I want to talk about as well with regard to the film. And I really want to talk about Woody Allen and his Jewishness, but also his neuroses. And I want to talk about those as sort of the self that he sees. And I think there are two very interesting theoretical concepts that are never applied to Jewish Americans that are typically applied to African and indigenous peoples. Um, and, and one from W.E.B. Du Bois um, who talks about the double consciousness in which you're no longer able to see yourself except for through the eyes of others, uh, really relating on black consciousness, that you can't see who you are as a human being. You only see yourself the way, well, white people see you, right, mm-hmm. which yeah. is problematic. God, what a smart guy. At, at best. And Du Bois is brilliant. Oh, right? he's a genius. Yeah, love him so much. Uh, later on, um, there's a, a, a bit of writing um, called The Third Eye, which, which builds off the same idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's it's written um, by Fatima Roney, mm-hmm. and she talks about this idea of cultures seeing themselves for what seems like the first time. Uh, these indigenous cultures, these vanishing cultures mm-hmm. in the twenties and thirties, uh, who are being filmed cinem- cin- cinematically, and they they're seeing themselves now on film, 
mm-hmm. right? And now they sort of know who they are, but they only know who they are not by seeing themselves or seeing themselves the way others see them, but through a third eye, the way the camera sees them. Mm-hmm. And what Woody Allen's film, I think, does with its speaking into the camera and breaking of the fourth wall with its sort of meta excursions into former girlfriends or boyfriends or wives, uh, you know, uh, its excursions back into elementary school teachers and why he hated all the other students in his class mm-hmm. and all of these sort of things. Great scene. Yeah, it's, it is a great scene. Uh, moments where he he speaks to the other uh, people who are just walking down the street about why this romance he's had with Annie has collapsed. Those man, the, the, that the scene in the elementary school classroom where mm-hmm. where the kids now it's like I was a heroin addict, now I'm a methadone addict. Right, it's so funny. And then just like he's asking these questions to us, and then the the, the strangers on the street come up to him and like give him the answer that the audience wishes they could give right. him. Right. Well, of course, love fades, right? You know, so great. random lady with a bunch of grocery yeah. sacks says. There's right. great scenes. Yeah, I mean, brilliant. good job, Woody Allen. Just, uh, you're irritating. Uh, what's going on, though, I think, in the film is that he is, to an extent, seeing his Jewishness, mm-hmm. right, through sort of that double consciousness. I mean, the most key scene of this mm-hmm. is when he goes to see Annie's family, yeah. and they look at him, and they see him as a Hasidic Jew. Yeah, full with, on. With the long you know, sideburns and the hat and the black and all that good stuff mm-hmm. and the long beard. Mm-hmm. And so he's dealing with that sort mm-hmm. of uh, consciousness and awareness of himself. Mm-hmm. And I think those moments when he speaks to the camera, he realizes he's doing all of these things as performance, mm-hmm. that life to an extent is performance. Mm-hmm. And so his, you know, again, neurotic version of Jewishness, not all Jews are neurotic as a stereotype. Yeah. Um, but the, the, that neurotic version of New York Jewishness. The, the Woody Allen Brooklyn Jew. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, that it, it is it is an act of performance and that is an act that's not really even seen or understood until it is seen through the third eye. You know, the double consciousness at the inner scene, but through the third eye. And, and then that's when it becomes sort of a trope that – there had always existed these, you know, sort of general traits that ethnic groups of people seem to share, you know, from time to time in personality and behavior and sort of cultural awareness. Mm-hmm. And what the film does is it provides a third eye, not for an indigenous culture, not for sort of a marginalized third world culture, but it provides a third eye for um, the marginalized version of what I would call white culture. Which is Jewish culture in New York? What white ethnic cultures? Yeah. yeah, and so now you see, oh, this is what Jewish folks look like, even though it's not actually what they look like. Just like just uh, what Woody Allen, his idea of this kind of extension of himself looks like, right? And, and as Roni would say, these are not actually accurate portrayals, nor is it an accurate accurate viewing that we see through the third eye. But what the film provides is indeed a third eye. Uh, looking at that culture, and by so doing, um, you know, Jewish Brooklyn and uh, Upper West Side mm-hmm. New York residents begin to see themselves for some of their behaviors and some of their sort of proclivities and, and whatnot, and that that it becomes sort of you know more understandable. And and uh, again, I think this third eye moment, though, again, is sort of as it reveals to the cultures themselves. I think uh, Jewishness in America, to a great extent, was sort of cr- recreated. In 1977, that it formed a sense of double consciousness of how they see themselves being seen with the dinner table scene as sort of a, a key scene. And that it also uh, began to uh, to create sort of a third thing, not not so much seeing themselves the way they are seen, but created the third thing of the way they would see themselves in a, a sort of a persona that they might begin to adopt and begin to exaggerate uh, certain um, aspects of that culture. I, I can only think of if we're talking about s- – 
being stereotypical of Jewish culture is just friend wrestlers, the nanny, just like that overly indulgent Precisely. Jewish accent and the, the the cackle and then Mr. Sheffield buying drinks how classy. Anyway, my thing about Jewish American culture is that it you you're right, that third what is it, lens the third eye the third yeah. eye kind of it definitely pervades itself and it's unfortunately come to the point where you know whenever you're talking about this jewish american sense that's the first thing that comes to my mind is just this really nondescript anglo white person um if that's the first thing that comes to mind i mean I, we've we as in the collective cultural consciousness have done that group of people of disservice whenever you don't really think of them as you know, individual people, but as their individual um, larger social classes stereotype. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much, uh, Miss Alex Bahannon. And and again, I get. I I think that it sort of creates this sort of artificial self and uh, whatnot in the culture. And so I do find that to be something interesting. And that the, the artificiality of the film itself sort of draws attention to that, and that's sort of what makes it so meta. And uh, to my mind, wonderful. But let's go ahead and hear the verdict of the rest of the dear listeners and the dear co-hosts uh, as we talk about this film. I ask you first, Mr. Dalton Stewart, what say you, shelf or trash, else or instead? Watch it, but you don't necessarily need to put it on the shelf. Um, you because can trash, like, films no, that you don't like. No, no, it's important. Um, I'm not going to trash something with cultural relevance. I, I mean, it was, I think it was selected as one of those films that are like... Car- Library of Congress. Yeah. yeah it is. Um and no, I, I mean, I don't personally like it, uh, but I'm glad I watched it, and I'm glad for the experience of watching it, and I can appreciate it. It's cultural relevance. So, uh, yeah, I'm not just saying, oh, I don't want to trash something because I don't want to be mean. No, I, I yeah, I, if I wanted to trash it, I would. Um, I didn't hate it. I, I enjoyed it well enough, um, but, I mean, I will, probably won't watch it again. Um, but I do think it is it is re- culturally relevant. I think it is important uh, to see um, some really early – modernist moving into postmodernist, you know, depictions of relationships and film. I think it's very valuable for that. Um, and also it's super valuable for young Christopher Walken and young Jeff Goldblum. Um, so I will say stream it. Uh, it is on Netflix right now. So go ahead and check it out else. So kind of a quasi else slash instead, I would recommend you check out a Zoe Kazan film from a few years back called Ruby sparks, uh, which was written, directed and stars her along with her, then romantic partner and maybe still um oh christ what's his doodle from there will be blood paul dano um and really does speak heavily to this uh, manic pixie dream girl thing uh, i mean the general plot is a young struggling um writer um writes the the perfect woman he gets drunk and he's mad and he writes the perfect woman and she comes to life magically um literally a magic she is literally dream. a manic pixie dream girl <laughs> and and uh, you know, in the off chance that Zoe Kazan ever listens to this, um, she has spoken, um, you know, in interviews about how she really hates the term Manic Pixie Dream Girl and especially applied to her film. Um, but, but, I mean, that's what the character is. Um, but it is speaking to a larger issue about, um, you know, bad roles for women in, in film and, you know, poorly written uh, female characters. So, I, I mean, I think that term applies to that film but in and only in the best sense of the way <clears throat> sorry 
I believe that term applies to the film Ruby Sparks, but only in the sense that it is, you know, because it is a deconstruction of, of that trope. Um, I really like the film Ruby Sparks quite a bit, and I think it's very valuable um, and, and kind of serves to say, hey, you know, think about how you, you are pursuing relationships because people aren't just your idea of them. They are their own person. Uh, I would also recommend Manhattan, uh, which we did for Good Trash Do Cinema. Um which is really very similar to Annie Hall. I think Annie Hall is quite a bit better um, in basically every way. Uh, but I did. Li- I actually think I enjoyed the um, experience of watching Manhattan a little bit better, even though Annie Hall is subjectively better. Does that make sense? It does indeed, sir. Yeah, because I, I find I find um, Alan a little bit more watchable in Manhattan. I find him less grating. Um, and finally, I, I'd, I'd recommend Five Hundred Days of Summer. Um, which Ha-ha, is I knew it. Which is basically the same film as this. It is, I mean, almost, I, I, it's so close to being the same movie, it's ridiculous. I uh, mean, obvious, rehashing the... Yeah, the, the only main difference being that Joseph Gordon-Levitt's super likable and Woody Allen's grating and obnoxious. And therein lies the problem. Because by being super likable, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character is very easy to relate and identify to, and you're like, whoa... Uh, Zoe Deschanel character Summers is a bitch, which yeah, I've, I, I've heard more times than I can count, and is super problematic. Like, no, she's not. Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character is an asshole, um, and like just thinks that this relationship should be everything that he wants, and he shouldn't have to really put any work into it. And I think that's where Annie Hall succeeds, is that by being unlikable, Woody Allen's character makes you realize that all these things that he wants out of this relationship are really kind of problematic. And it's interesting, though... That the more the con- the movie that may have the quote the more controversial ending with them you know leaving each other and he doesn't get the girl of his dreams and he came- becomes this kind of stagnant character. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that that movie was the one that was made in the seventies and that we have the whatever the seemingly the aughts two thousand like oh nine, nine something like that five hundred yeah. days of summer where he's. He's a righteous guy, but he's actually kind of a dick. But he ends up getting the girl of his dreams eventually and rewarding He, he grows him. as a person. I mean, I think that's important to point out. He yeah. does grow as a person. But, yeah, he, he gets the, a girl at the end. You know, he learns from his experiences. And meanwhile, Zoe Deschanel's character uh, looks like an asshole because people are, um, I'm going to say, culturally misogynistic on accident. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart, for that. Miss Alexandra Bohannon, shelf or trash, else or instead. I definitely shelf this film. It's essential viewing, I think, just as a as a person that is alive today, you should you should watch this movie because I mean, it did get four Oscars and I know sometimes Oscars can be um, you know, misawarded um in the general cultural consensus, but this is I one I think that they they got right. <laughs> Um, interest. It was interesting to find out that it was against Star Wars. I don't know how I feel about that. That's kind of like one of those sticky questions. But anyway, you can think about that one, listener, if you were part of the Academy. More um, importantly, it was with Smokey and the Bandit. And I mean, how that didn't win every Oscar is oh, beyond yes, me. Of course. Um, other. Um, so your else's, if you wanted to make a kind of a movie marathon with these. Honestly, I would just say that our anti-trash Valentine's picks for this month, our romance picks, mm. would pair really well with this movie. We, 
I think we are so professional that we did this. We did this unconsciously to make such a good marathon for you. So you're welcome. And um, so the reason why I'd recommend um, Punch Drunk Love is it's kind of it's an unusual meta love story that has a lot of interesting plays on film tropes and kind of questions some you know stereotypes of different peoples. And then you also have. Um, Blue is the warmest color, which is poignant and sad in a lot more real life. And yes, it is three hours, so uh, get your watching pants on. But um, it's also... Those are typically pants of the sweat variety. Yes, (laughs) those are your watching pants. Elastic band in the waist, definitely required. Um, But I think those would really pair well with this movie. And to round out a marathon, if you wanted one more pick, um, probably... I would even say Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I think that's kind of the other one. Sure thing. That would go well with this. So there you go. Well, Mr. Sells, uh, what are you thinking? Shelf or trash? And do you have picks for else and instead? Definitely, definitely. It's a shelfable film. (laughs) And it's a film that is worth your time. Um, But I'm going to say my only additional else uh, again, I, I'm just thinking about in terms of struggling with Jewishness and Jewish identity. And the single best. sort of wrestling, uh, the single best sort of uh, meditation on that question. The Hebrew Hammer? No. <laughs> Incorrect. Is a little book called My Name is Asher Lev by Kayan Potok. Mm-hmm. And it's all about um, an artist who's struggling with making art. And, uh, you know, it's kind of difficult to do because, you know, making of images is kind of difficult for the Jewish mind uh, because there's a list of ten things you shouldn't do. And uh, that's sort of part and parcel in that and how to be Hasidic in that tradition. And uh, there is a film version of The Chosen, which is another Podoc film, which is not so shiny. Oh, but, that's um, unfortunate because I like reading The Chosen a lot. So. Yeah, no, Chosen's great, but the film's not so good. Um, but My Name is Asher Lev is what I want to recommend more than anything as uh, something to read alongside this film. And I thank you so much, uh, dear co-host, dear listener. Your syllabus just got a little bit longer. Let's move on and give the um, – Dear listener, an opportunity to give feedback via that magical means of social media. Miss Alexandra Bohannon, do you know anything about social media means by which a conversation might be held? I do know things of a social media nature. You can find us at www.facebook.com forward slash good trash genre cast. So on Facebook, we had some uh, feedback from our listeners our on our favorite romantic films that we asked for i think was it blue or i can't remember which um of our yeah um brad lepperson says <laughs> you're doing it too he wrote lepperson <laughs> he did not the singularity <laughs> has been met how did it's that even just, happen it's there it's right brad here. have you changed your name to lepperson officially okay he said household poll Romance, um, for me, is Notting Hill. The Wife is How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days. Action Romance, me, uh, is Romancing the Stone. And Wife is Speed. Ooh, not a good call. (laughs) Randall, well, you can take that up with Mrs. Lepperson. (laughs) (laughs) Randall Bays says Trick for his uh, romantic movie film that he likes a lot. I'm going to have to look that one up, Randall. I'm not familiar with that one. Yeah. Um, Brigham, our friend, shared a link about Rob Zombie's new movie, 31. I know nothing of it about 31. It's about clowns and they kill people. Mm. So, sounds scary. Mm. 
Because clowns. Sounds less interesting than Lords of Salem, but I'll yeah, keep an definitely eye on it. that. But I. Like, I don't have the weird clown thing, but I think I could get creeped out by them. I find them off-putting, but yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't go as far as to say I Some people phobia. have the clown phobia. Yeah. Oh, my God. Look at this fucking clown. Um, and then also, you guys were a lot of likes and, you know, general tomfoolery on the Facebook page. Um, so... Recently, Arthur decided we should be on Google+. And our um, name on Google+, is Good Trash Genre Cast OKC. So you could add us to your circles and comment on our posts. And we have quite a bit of feedback from Google+. A Google+, user by the name of Waldini Porlanto... Sorry if I butchered that. Said in regards to our newest episode that he likes it and thanks for sharing. Um, in response to Arthur posting about the blue is a war- warmest color, Alan Korn, K O R N, if you wanted to know, uh, says that he thought it was a beautiful film for me, one of the best of the year, 10 out of 10. Wow, high praise, Alan? Yes, Alan Korn. Hopefully you uh, don't hate us after you listen to us talk about it. Um, and then in response to our punch drunk love game of actors out of water in terms of their usual role, Nicole S writes, I'm a bit hesitant to mention Charlize Theron in monster. I thought her performance was stellar yet. Was not necessary to cast one of the most beautiful women in the world props? She pulled it off, but it was a slap in the face to less attractive actresses out there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Most deaf. I really need to see Monster, but it's... Uh, yeah, it's there's a lot of movies, and it just doesn't seem like that important of a film. Like, yeah. I should probably watch Citizen Kane if I'm making time for films I don't actually want to watch. Lastly, in terms of feedback, um, we've got several new likes, a lot of uh, pluses, which is Google Plus's way of saying that likes, I guess, and a few shares. Um, so we're really appreciative of new people on Google Plus and all of our listeners, especially those in the UK and Germany for... From whence seventy percent of our lis- listenership has come from in February so far. That makes a lot of sense because I was wondering who's using Google Pl- Plus because I assumed we all gave up on it and now I know the Europeans are still using it. And good for you for not supporting uh, what's his doodle, uh, so. Z- Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg. Although you're still supporting Google, so I don't know. I'm. I didn't know people use it. I'm really glad. I didn't either. I'm glad to see that people are following us on there and making uh, usage of that. That's really awesome. Yeah, we definitely like to keep hearing from you all. Especially on that. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Alexander Bohannon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, do you know anything else about social media means by which a conversation may be held? Can I confess something? I, I tell you this as an artist. I think you'll understand. Sometimes when I'm driving on the road at night, I see two headlights that come towards me fast. I have this sudden impulse to turn the wheel quickly head on into the oncoming car. I can anticipate the explosion, the sound of shattering glass, the flames rising out of the flowing tweets. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you can find the Good Trash Genre Cast on Twitter at good underscore trash. And can I just say thank you, Christopher Walken, for that memorable and timeless monologue in Annie Hall because there are a lot of great Christopher Walken monologues. That's probably one of my favorites that I have ever heard. 
we appreciate you saying thank you to Mr. Walken. We may not say the same for your recitation, but we think. Oh, no, that was terrible. We're, we're so glad that it happened. Um, let's move if on. If you didn't though. like my bad impressions, you should have stopped listening to the show a long time ago. Is there any feedback coming in from that Twitter? Uh, not really. We got one new follower, which uh, was real fun, and I like to single out our new followers because we kind of we've kind of leveled off on our Twitter followers. I think a lot of our devoted fan base that uses Twitter um, is pretty much already following us. But we got a, a new follower in the way of Elizabeth Collins. That's at e Collins eighty eight. She has a degree in English and anthropology, so that means she works in retail and has an undeserved sense of self worth. Self worth. So I appreciate your um. Is okay. Did she? She did like the Facebook. Your your sense of self worth, Elizabeth, is totally deserved, and we're glad to have you. That's right. Although I appreciate your self aware uh, Twitter bio. It's pretty funny. Okay, I'm still going to write that book. I am so glad that that was her Twitter bio, and uh, not you. Uh, riffing on the fact that she has an no, English no, 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 <laughs> oh no. I wasn't just riffing. That's her actual. Twitter That's bio. her Twitter bio. Okay. Sorry. No, no, no. I'm only a dick to you guys. I'm not mean to our listeners. Stay tuned, dear listener. You might hear an interview with uh, Elizabeth in a bonus episode from the Southwest PCA. But more on that anon. So uh, again, dear listener, you can of course give us feedback on iTunes at Stitcher Internet Radio at the Podbean site. We love to hear all those things from you as often as we can. Arthur Gordon has a bit of feedback for us also. We did get a comment actually on the Podbean on our Blair Witch show. Uh, Arthur, if you'd go ahead and let us hear that at this time. Uh, yes, Debbie Dedimore, uh writes in on our Blair Witch episode. Uh, Love the analysis and commentary. Never seen the movie, but now I want to. We'll take Dramamine first, maybe. I've been wanting <laughs> to teach a film as art class, and this is fueling that fire. Well, Debbie, go for it. Just put it out there and go for it, and we fully support that decision. Thanks, Debbie, for that bit of feedback. And if you want to have any conversations off mic via those various means of social media, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that syllabus and how you put that class together. That sounds very fascinating to me. Uh, well, thank you, thank you, thank you so much to your co-host for all that feedback. Thank you to your listener for giving it and uh, giving us just an opportunity to keep the conversation going. Let's move on, though, because, guys, it's time to play the game. It's time to play the game. Time to play the game! <laughs> this week's game is our favorite romantic couples. Uh, that's right! Favorite movie couples brought to you by Annie Hall. Annie Hall. No one wants to have sex with Woody Allen. <laughs> Despite what he seems to think. Except that one girl, Alice, who did, and then he didn't. So, Mr. Dalton Stewart, what are your picks for favorite romantic leads? You know, um, we, we've already mentioned Punch Drunk Love once tonight, but I do want to single out Barry and Lena from um, Punch Drunk Love because I really like them as a couple. I like those characters. I like that movie a whole, whole lot. I, I would go as far as to say I love that movie, um, and I really appreciate the, the romance that those two have. Um, there, there's these characters in this movie that I'm not supposed to talk about anymore since we did an episode about it, but Jack and Marla, and we'll move on from there. Um, okay, I was thinking of this earlier. Yeah, go interrupt. Ahead. Is Marla a, a manic pixie dream girl? Discuss. No, Tyler's a manic pixie dream girl. Correct. Marla is Marla Singer, and she's a fully formed character. That's my opinion, anyway. Um, I would say Clarence in Alabama from a True Romance, written by Mr. Quentin Tarantino and directed by Tony Scott. I, I think they're uh, adorable. They're the less, um, the more relatable, less crazy version of Mallory. Uh, and Mickey Knox from uh, Natural Born Killers. 
Um, and you know what? I'm going to go real sappy. I'm going to say Jack and Rose from Titanic because that shit still gets me in a big way. I'll never let go. I promise. All right. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Ms. Alexandra Bohannon, what are your picks? I'm saying I'm going to go pretty classic with just Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks in Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail because I like You've Got Mail more than Sleepless in Seattle, um, but that's just my personal preference. I... I have not seen You've Got Mail in a very long time, so I'm curious to know how the technology <laughs> um, holds up or if that is just so distracting because of how laughable it is at this point. Um, hopefully not. And then in 2010, I believe the BBC – well, I don't know the year, but I definitely know the BBC made um, a two-part miniseries of Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre is probably my favorite novel of all time. Um, and I, I think it was Toby – I can't remember who the the leads the what the leads were, but specifically that version, I felt like they had the best chemistry out of all of the various iterations of Jane Eyre I've seen, which includes one that has isn't it Charlton Heston? Uh, I'm unaware of this. There's or is it Orson Welles? There's I a think version Heston's of, more likely than Wells. Okay, there's a f- version of Jane Eyre that has a very famous actor in it, and it's really bad. Okay, so I don't doubt anyway, that. so that's those are my um, romantic movie couple picks. Thank you very much. When you said you were going to go classic and old school, and then you went with Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks, I felt strangely geriatric. <laughs> Do we need to turn on Grandpa's Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely did not think that's where that was going. I assumed we were talking uh, Fred and Ginger kind of thing. So I was kind of surprised at your um, saying of old school because the first things I wanted to say were Ingrid Bergman and Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca, mm-hmm. which is going to be upcoming very soon mm-hmm. in this series. I just love them, uh, their chemistry as a pairing, which brings up another sort of uh, pairing, which is an actual real-life marriage between Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall and The Big Sleep. Mm-hmm. I just love, love watching them. And then again, one more old school naming in the movie McClintock. Uh, one, uh, that, John Wayne yeah. and uh, Catherine, Catherine Hepburn is fantastic. You mean Maureen O'Hare? Oh, I do mean Maureen O'Hare. Why don't yeah. I say Catherine Hepburn? Because you're an idiot. Because I still think about Bogart yeah. and African Queen. Yeah. Man. But uh. one, yes, Maureen O'Hare and John Wayne is fantastic. John Wayne's not good at a lot. I'll tell you two things he's good at. Riding horses and being in movies with uh, Maureen O'Hare. Because all the movies he was in with her are great. There's something that, that are being directed by John Ford. Yeah, also that. Um, I thought you were going to say this because you're old, so I didn't. But uh, Jimmy Stewart and uh, What's Her Doodle and uh, It's a Wonderful Life. No. No, you don't like that one? Who, who is it? Who, who's the female that in girl there? that played that part? All right, thank you there, co-host, for that bit of gameplay. Let's end the show. Let's end it now with what's got us fired she up. She could deadlift both of you. This week in pop culture. We didn't stop the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't stop the fire. No, we didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Miss Alexandra Bohannon, I hope you are fired up. In pop culture. Yeah, more wrestling. So I watched the NXT Women's Fatal 4-Way this past Wednesday, two-hour paper-ish view. It was very... uh, Because it was the WWE Network, so you get it for free. Um, Yeah, I really really enjoyed it. The ending was crazy. I didn't think... um, Gosh, it... The ending was insane, and I'm really interested to see this storyline 
Um, who are they comparing um, Kevin Owens' character to? They're comparing him to this new famous wrestler. Brock Lesnar, probably. Lesnar, yeah. They're, call- they're calling him kind of the Lesnar of NXT, which is kind of really going to be interesting. Well, Lesnar was a dick, so. Yeah, what no. Little- I have been inspired to check out some NXT because of you two over the last couple of weeks. Um, and that seems to check out. I cannot believe we were talking about wrestling. Like three of us extensively are talking about wrestling on this podcast. I never would have foreseen that in a million years. Yeah, Arthur actually and I kind of talked all about wrestling now. So yeah, understandably. Yeah, that NXT shit's real good. It is. It is very good. Um, and besides that, and the, besides the fact that I had my powerlifting competition this weekend, and I did really well. And I am very pleased with She how does even lift, bro. Yeah, I'm pleased my how things turned out. Um, that's about uh, that's about all the energy I have right now to be fired up about anything. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Alexander Bohannon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, are you fired up as well, sir? Yeah, this is old news by the time you're listening to this uh, listener. I'm by old news by a couple of weeks. Um, but um, Marvel Studios has secured a deal of some sort with Sony Pictures to bring Spider-Man back into the fold. Um, and it's less, I'm, I'm fired up, not about that news. I mean, I, you've all already heard about it at this point. I'm fired up cause it's not that big of a deal. And here's why Sony pictures still has the rights to Spider-Man creative control over Spider-Man and casting decisions and hiring decisions of all sorts. Basically the only thing that's changing is that they're going to reboot it again because they're realizing nobody liked the direction they were going. The the only other the only difference is that they're going to be able to put Spider Man in Marvel Studios movies, um, and he's going to be folded in as still being owned by Sony. And if we've learned anything recently, it's that Sony's not good at a whole lot. Uh, most of all, email security, uh, but primarily Spider Man. <laughs> primarily Spider Man over email security. <laughs> well, I, one of those is more important Can we to question me. Question the ranking there. There's only been one email problem. There's been about. Five Spider-Man issues in the yeah. last decade. Yeah. Fair point. Thanks, Fair Arthur. point. Yeah. Um, and also, I care about Spider-Man more than I care about <laughs> than I care about Sony's dirty laundry. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it's cool. Uh, that'll be fun to see Spider-Man in the larger Marvel superhero universe, whatever. It's not that big of a deal, guys. It's really not because Sony's the one that, you know, kind of bungled this whole transition from Sam Raimi um, and has been making these kind of shitty movies. So, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm interested in the, to see how this unfolds, and it's nerdy, so I figured we should talk about it. But, uh, yeah, I'm less fired up than I should be, I guess, about that. Uh, last, and this is certainly not least, um, I was in Tulsa uh, this last week for, for quite a while and um, was able to go to the Circle Cinema in Tulsa, um, which is Tulsa, Oklahoma's nonprofit uh, film theater. Um, and they had secured, and I, I just happened to go. I was up there visiting uh, my special lady friend, as um, your grandparents call it when they're talking about your aunt or uncle's uh, gay partner, my special friend. Um, I was up there seeing my lady, and um, we went to uh, Circle Cinema because I saw that they were going to be playing True Romance. And I was like, oh, cool. That's that's fun. I like True Romance. Uh, they had a 35-millimeter print of it, which I did not find out till I got there and was real jacked about that. Um it was kind of a rough print. I mean, it had seen better days. There were actually a couple of bad frame jumps, but and the, the sound was real crackly. But that was part of the experience. The sound was super crackly in a good way. Um, and it looked great, and it was just a lot of fun to, to get a chance to see that film on, on actual film. 
It's really exciting. So that 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 was really what I've done this week. That sounds really awesome. Thank you very Man, much. Man, it was for that, it was cool, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Now I just spent the last week and nay only eighteen hours ago arrived back in Oklahoma from Albuquerque, New Mexico at the time of this record uh, from the Southwest PCA, which is the Pop Culture Association, used to be slash ACMA, uh, which is American Culture Studies Association Conference. It's basically an academic conference that does what we do in the analysis portion of this show with all the things in pop culture. And so there's including NPR. Including NPR uh, and anything else around uh, the whole of the world. And I had a really, really good time. Um, we're going to drop a bonus episode. I did some interviews uh, while I was there. And Sh- so yeah. I'm going to shout out now Elizabeth Collins, who's our new Twitter follower, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Ian Daw who has um, written a book on Breaking Bad, who wants me to help him write another book about Breaking Bad. And so that's exciting times. And also Charlie Perdue, who's one of the editors at McFarland Publishing, who publishes the books that do the things that we do. And so exciting times uh, for you all in the future. And uh, very, very pumped about dropping those episodes. But you know what I'm really pumped about is how you can really have important conversations about the real world by looking at these fantasy worlds uh, in pop culture. So I really, really am excited uh, about that, what we do on this show and what they do at that conference. And I think it's valuable and I think its value was reiterated to me once again. Now, dear listener, I have one other little piece I want to say before we move on to um, telling you guys about what we're going to watch next week. And that is we've had 900 and some odd listens in the last 15 days to this show. In fact, we're close to a thousand than we are to 900 so clearly you think this is important and meaningful as well and there's a lot of you all of a sudden and we want to say welcome we want to say thank you we want to say please give us feedback so we know how to make the show better this is why we're doing this is we want to have this conversation really in sort of a broad platform and so we really because again we do the same we're all friends and we love movies and we're nerds but we're really happy to have so many more of you jumping on with us that's really makes me makes me feel good. And most of you are coming from Great Britain and Germany, which is fascinating and interesting to me. We'd like to know how you found us. We'd like to know if you're maybe military from the United States, and that's sort of the connection, or if you actually are um, you know, British and, and German citizens. And we, we just don't know. And we'd like to know how you found us, what you think of us, how we could, again, how we can improve the show, things you'd like to hear us say, all of that sort of stuff. And we just want to say welcome and thank you, and we want to keep this thing going. So now, dear listener, we want to let you know about next week. Next week, we're going to go back in the classics. I already mentioned Ingrid Bergman and Mr. Humphrey Bogart. We're going to be looking at a little film called Casablanca. You may have heard of it. It's been on a list or two. And uh, we are going to close this month of February out, yeah? Of this anti-trash romance week. Uh, or month of film. And so, dear listener, take a look at that and have some great conversation about high art, about low art, about good trash, about anti-trash, about good art, about all the stuff, because it turns out the conversation is sort of what makes life, it just makes it better. It's all about that piece of pie after the movie. And we want to make your life better, and we want to make our own lives better, and we, we think, again, these conversations matter. So have that conversation, and we'll see you next time. It had to be you It had to be you I wandered around And finally found 
somebody who could make me be true, could make me be blue, and even be glad just to be sad. Wonderful you It had 